And I tell you, friends, it's an exciting time to be alive. And we're going to see that in really tangible, textual ways this morning, because we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. I think, without question, the most complicated, potentially complicated chapter in all of Matthew. So tune in, get ready, and this is going to be a great one. I am super excited about it. It's not going to be great because of the delivery, though I'm hopeful God will give me clarity and, and uh, power to communicate, but I think it's going to be great because of the content. There is so much going on in Matthew chapter 24. The sermon this morning is titled, These and Those, These and Those. We'll get to that in just a little bit. All right, let's remind ourselves of where we are in Matthew's gospel, seven chapters, the way that Pastor Jared and myself and Pastor Haupt have divided this up. The first chapter was Jesus as son, followed by Jesus as preacher, Jesus as healer, Jesus as leader, Jesus as teacher. We are now in the penultimate chapter. Jesus as seer. The word seer is another word for prophet. These chapters, chapter 22, 23, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, have an Old Testament feel to them. It's, it's Jesus pronouncing judgment. It's Jesus overturning tables. It's, you get a sense of foreboding, not unlike a prophecy of, say, Jeremiah's or Hosea's or Isaiah's in the Old Testament. This is Jesus as prophet. This is Jesus as seer. And we find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 24, which is really at the height of that, that prophetic urgency and that prophetic judgment. Just last night after the Fry-yay evening, how many were there for Fry-yay last night? Okay, good. I see a few hands over the age of the requisite 30 including my own. I was there, 44 years old. Jeffrey, you were there, and I know you're older than 30. Yeah, Merv, I saw you there. Yeah, you're over 30. That's all right. It was really great, really wonderful. And I want to thank Luke and the team for putting that on, Estelle and Craig and Rhiannon. God bless you all. It's great to see a space being created here at the Kingscliff Church for our young people. Can the church say amen? Good. So anyway, I'm driving home, and Nate, if you could bring down the lights just as insofar as it's possible, at least just for this picture. Driving home last night and get just out here, let me orient myself to where I am, just over here, and there was this amazing lightning storm happening just over the Tweed River. Did anybody else see this last night? It was just absolutely phenomenal. So I pulled my car over and uh, took some pictures. Now, I took all of these pictures last night. This is nine pictures that I took on my iPhone. That tells you it was a really awesome lightning storm when you can get pictures of that quality just on your iPhone. And I sat there for probably 15 or 20 minutes, and, and the weather and the lightning and the storm just did its thing. It was amazing. And for me, it was really special, really spiritual, and really profound because it's one of the best lightning storms I've ever seen, top 10. And I had just spent the whole day ruminating and studying on Matthew chapter 24. And right at the heart of Matthew chapter 24 is this text. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so it was a perfect and profound and deeply spiritual beginning to my Sabbath and also introduction to this sermon. And it, it, it has even greater profundity that I'll unpack as we come to the end of the sermon. But I just want to sort of leave that out there for you now. Now, this might not look like much to you. You can bring those lights back up now if you need to, Nathan. This might not look like much to you, but what you're looking at here is a top-down map of the third largest cave system in the world. Okay, It's a cave system that comes from the area that I'm from in the United States, South Dakota, and it's called Jewel Cave National Monument. And it's, the, as I say, the third most expansive cave system in the world. I've actually been to Jewel Cave on a number of occasions. There are some... 200 miles of mapped caves, and they're not done mapping it yet. 200 miles, so 320 kilometers. They're not done mapping it yet. In fact, I read just this morning on the internet that the, the, the space that they have mapped, they think, is only about 3 to 5% of the total air volume of the cave. So it could be even astronomically larger than what they presently know. And if you look down in the if you look in the upper left-hand corner and just right down in the, in the middle section at the bottom, those are two smaller sections that are carved out of larger sections, or very small sections within the larger map above. These are the actual tours you can take in the cave. I've taken two of these tours. 
The one, for example, in the upper, upper left-hand corner lasts about two hours. And if you, it's hard to tell from this map, but that section, that little box in the upper left-hand corner, is a very, very, very small percentage of what you see in front of you there. Okay? This, this section down here on the lower uh, uh, section, that is a slightly larger section, but still a very small percentage of the overall labyrinth that is Crystal Caves. I remember when I took that tour, we went down and they take you into this great room and it's just absolutely astonishing. You're down there for an hour and a half and then they tell you, you have seen only 2% of the known explored uh, part of this cave and maybe as little as a tenth of a percent of the total cave that's out there. In order to explore this cave, they have to go down for days, camping for three and four and five days, squeezing through little holes sometimes the size of a basketball. Right? I mean, it is a very dangerous, amazing thing. Now, our text today, Matthew chapter 24, is a little bit like crystal caves. We, there is a labyrinth of theological and biblical complexity that lies underneath Matthew chapter 24 that we have no hope of exploring this morning. It's just not going to happen. But what we are going to do is we're going to take that little one-hour tour. Okay, we're going to go into, the, into that first great room there of Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to orient ourselves so we get a feel for the shape of Matthew chapter 24. But I want you to know, there is a theological depth below that, very much like Jewel Cave here, that you could spend the rest of your life exploring and still not plumb the depths of this single chapter. That's what we're dealing with today. This is a chapter that is rich in typology, rich in poet, uh, po poetic structure, rich in Old Testament symbolism. There is so much going on in Matthew chapter 24, all of these different convergences, and all we're going to be able to do this morning is go in, take a look around for about an hour, and say, man, that is amazing. Now, we're going to have a flashlight in our hands. I'm going to tell you a little bit in a moment what that flashlight looks like, but let's talk about the overall shape of Matthew and where this tremendously complex and tremendously rich chapter, chapter 24 fits into that, complex, or into that structure. We've talked about how Matthew has built his gospel around five major discourses or sermons of Jesus. These are structured, you might recall, in what theologians called a chiastic form, A, B, C, B, A, right? where you have correspondence between the A's and the B's, and the punchline is that center thing, the C. You can have other chiastic formulations. You can have A, B, C, D, C, B, A, etc. But in the case of Matthew, there are five discourses, five major sections that some New Testament scholars believe is designed to sort of mirror the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus is the new Moses, uh, the, Mount of, uh, uh, the, the Mount of Blessing there in Matthew 5 to 7 is the New Sinai. So there's a whole lot going on in the Gospel of Matthew. There is a symmetry, there is an organization and a structure here that is profound. Where Matthew chapter 24 fits into this is really fascinating because Matthew chapter 24 comes in the lowest A there, the closing address, right? Matthew opens with the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of uninterrupted uh, monologue from Jesus, and then it closes with chapter, uh, this sermon here, chapters 23, 24, and 25, which is mostly uninterrupted as well. Again, three chapters. Another fascinating similarity is that the first takes place from a mountain, the New Testament Sinai, and this closing and final discourse also takes place from a mountain. We'll talk about some other similarities when we get together next week. The next discourse was Jesus' sending of the disciples in chapter 10. Then at the center was this whole idea of the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like, is like, is like. Those parables that were absolutely central to Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry, followed then by the preparation of the disciples and then now the closing address. So even within the larger chiastic structure that is the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24 is right at the center of this three-part sermon series that we're in here, 23, 24, and then 25. If you look in your Bible, you will notice that if your Bible's like mine and the words of Jesus are in red, all of chapter 23 is in red. That is to say, this is an uninterrupted narrative. There's no camera change here. There's no, Jesus is at the temple. This is on, the, this is on probably the Wednesday, not later than the Thursday of the final week of Jesus' life. Right? So there's Matthew chapter 23. The whole thing is in red. Then if you look at Matthew chapter 24, 
with the exception of verses 1 and 3, everything else is in red. There's only a very small scene change here, and that's where Jesus leaves the temple, we'll get to this in just a second, and goes out to the Mount of Olives, okay? Whether or not Jesus knew that he was purposefully going to a mountain to bring closure to his closing address in the same way that he was on a mountain when he had the opening address, we don't know. But we know that Matthew has constructed his gospel that way. So then if you look at Matthew chapter 25, you will notice that that is also entirely in red. So 24, 23, 24, 25 is one virtually uninterrupted sermon, right? A long discourse with a single scene change from in the temple to the top of the mountain. We find ourselves now right at the end of Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus has gone into the temple and he has said, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And we had that sermon two weeks ago, fools and blinds, fools and blinds. And Jesus gives that impassioned appeal right at the end of Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather. If you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible or marking in your Bible, just I want you to appreciate the depth and the beauty of that single phrase and what it tells us about the character of God. I want to gather. Can the church say amen? That's what's in the heart of God. The heart of God is not to disperse. The heart of God is not to judge. The heart of God is not to punish There is no punitive element within the heart of God. God wants to gather. I want to gather. But you were not willing. I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you will see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. How different this story might have been. How different this story might have been if Jesus had been received and believed on as the Jewish Messiah, as the promised one, Jesus would have never left the temple because he would have been slain there as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knows that this is not going according to plan, God's plan for Israel. He goes to the temple. That's supposed to be the last place he ever goes. He's supposed to lay down his life in the temple, but as it turns out, in fact, he will be betrayed. He will be crucified, not only outside of the temple, but outside of the city. So those words right there are not a part of God's plan A. They're a part of plan B. And Jesus departed from the temple. He will never again step foot in the temple precincts. He has left the temple. Now, we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 24. Before we do that, let's continue to orient ourselves. We've asked the question in a previous sermon, how could Jesus predict his death? I mean, how did he know he was going to die? All the way back as far as Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had said, who do, the, who do people think I am? And some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets, etc., Who do you think I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter speaks up on behalf of the others. And from that time on, Matthew says, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer and die. Jesus knew that there was was going to be an inevitable conflict between him and the religious leaders and ultimately him and Rome. So you get this sense, and we've mentioned this before, that the Gospel of Matthew is picking up a kind of momentum, a kind of steam and that it is racing ineluctably towards Jesus' death. When when we get here to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus knows that he is in the very last hours of his life. The last few days, and you could number his life in hours at this point. And so the question is, is how did Jesus know he was going to die? The answer is, how could he not have known? Because of the tension that existed between Rome and between uh, Israel, uh, that is to say the Jews, and between Jesus and the Jews, the, Jesus could read the handwriting on the wall. There had been new, many Messiah figures before the time of Jesus. 
that had been slain or otherwise dispatched, and there would be many Messiah figures after the time of Jesus. Jesus knew that when you finally and fully set yourself out as a Messiah, that was not only unsettling to the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, but it was hugely disturbing potentially to the Romans, and death was an inevitable consequence of setting yourself forth as the Messiah. This is one of the reasons why we see Jesus again and again in the Gospels not being right up front about who he is and actually urging people not to disclose the nature of his identity. He would heal people and say, don't tell anyone. He would reveal who he was and say, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Jesus knew that this snowball was going to get rolling down the hill eventually, but he was doing his best to slow it insofar as it was possible. But here in Matthew chapters 23, 24, 25, the snowball is racing with unstoppable force and speed. It's, right, it's hurtling toward the cross, and Jesus knows it. And so he leaves the temple precincts, and he begins to wind his way up to the top of the Mount of Olives. How could he not know? In the words of N.T. Wright, he has come to Jerusalem knowing... Knowing what? He has come to Jerusalem knowing that by continuing his dramatic mission of summoning Israel to repentance, he will precipitate hostility, yes, violence, yes, and his own death. Jesus' death is not going to catch him by surprise. He's been, he's been anticipating it. He's been prophesying it and predicting it for the better part of three years. He knows what's coming. And the courage and the bravery the poise and the calmness with which he faces this inevitability is phenomenal. We've talked all the way back, way back in Matthew chapter 3, we talked about some of the tests that historians use to identify historical veracity. How do we know that an event of history actually happened? How do we know that a, an event from 700 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, what tests do historians use to ascertain whether or not something actually happened? And there are scholars, both secular and sacred, that debate, did Jesus really say that or was that something that was added to Jesus later? Did he say that? Did he say that? And liberal scholars come to the Bible and they try to decipher and discern and surgically figure out what Jesus was likely to have said and the stuff that his followers supposedly added later. Matthew chapter 24 is almost universally agreed upon, the, the, the majority of it, almost universally agreed upon between both secular and sa uh, sacred scholars as being basically absolutely certain that Jesus actually said this. In other words, just from a secular standpoint, there are so many little elements in Matthew chapter 24. It's like, yeah, Jesus said that, Jesus said that, Jesus said that. I'll give you one case in point. Right in the heart of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is going to say, of that day and hour, nobody knows, not even me. It is impossible to imagine that the early church would have invented that. You would not take your Messiah figure, your God in human flesh figure, and have him announcing a, a very obvious limitation on his omniscience. This is a criterion that historians call the criterion of embarrassment. We talked about this back in Matthew chapter 3. You can go watch that again and remind yourself that if you find something that's recorded that's potentially embarrassing to your central figure, your protagonist, or potentially embarrassing to your cause, and it somehow survived down through history, a historian looks at that and says, that's probably true. Because you wouldn't make that up. So to have Jesus saying right in the center of this, of that day, of, of that coming, of that return, no one knows. I don't even know. A secular historian looks at that and says, that's almost certain that Jesus said that. It's a virtual certainty. Insofar as we can know anything historically for certain, that happened. That happened. Jesus came and he knew. This is Jesus raw. This is Jesus uncut. He has poured out his emotions. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Fools, hypocrites, blind. And then finally, those plaintive words with tears in his eyes. I wanted to gather you. And so he has left the temple precincts. He knows he's on God's plan B now. He goes to the top of the mountain. And what we have here is one of the most dense, complicated, rich passages in all of Scripture and certainly in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to just take a tour here in the opening compartment of Matthew chapter 24. There is a palpable tension between Jesus and the temple, and it's been building in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, every Gospel 
creates this tension in its own unique way. Mark has his way of creating this gospel tension between Messiah and temple. Matthew has his own way of doing it. John has his own way of doing it. Luke has his own way of doing it. For example, Luke is the only gospel writer who records the story of Jesus being lost at the age of 12 by his parents when they went to Jerusalem. Then his parents leaving him, realizing they'd lost him, and then going back to Jerusalem, locating him. And when his parents found him in the uh, uh, Gospel of Luke, does anybody remember where Jesus was? He was in the temple. And what he's doing in the temple is he's confounding and he's cross-examining the religious leaders of the day. Luke is setting in tension Jesus and the temple. John sets it in, in tension right at the very outset of his Gospel when he shows the cleansing of the temple for the first time, something that, not Matthew, something that neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke record, the first cleansing of the temple. Only John records the first cleansing of the temple. And Jesus, in his own words, standing there on the gates of the temple, after, or standing there on the steps of the temple after the temple has been cleansed, it, it says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the people were scandalized by this. Are you kidding? What an absurd claim. It took us 46 years to build this building, and now you're saying, and then John wants you to know, he wasn't speaking about the literal temple, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Every one of the gospel writers has their own unique signature, their own idiosyncratic way of saying, look, the temple was the place, the location of God's action, the location of God's presence, the location of God's forgiveness. It was. But now Jesus is the place of God's location, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, and God's action on earth. And Matthew has his way of doing it, Mark has his way of doing it, Luke has his way of doing it, and John has his way of doing it. But every gospel writer is absolutely unanimous in their basic, their basic thesis that what was happening here is now happening here. The temple is no longer made of marble and stone and gold and cedar. The temple is now made of flesh and bone and ligaments and sinew. And when Jesus went into the temple, this is an amazing, marvelous thing that's actually prophesied in the Old Testament, that Jesus, the physical, bodily, flesh and blood Jesus, would come into the wood, stone, gold, marble temple, that the temple is in the temple. And he's pleading, hey! All of those sacrifices, all of the, the, the calendar events, all of the feasts, all of that. Hey, that is about something. It's about someone. It's not just a religion. It's about a person. And I'm here. Hello, I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? But they wouldn't hear. All of the arrows were pointing singularly and wonderfully to Jesus. And so the temple has gone into the temple. The temple has been rejected from the temple. And so the temple leaves the temple and then says the temple will be destroyed because that is no longer the place where God's action and God's forgiveness and God's mercy, that's not the place anymore. This is the place. I am the place. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus knows all of this. He understands that they are not merely rejecting another potential political messianic figure. He knows that they are rejecting what amounts to the nucleus of their own religion and ancestry and, and legacy. So you can imagine there is tremendous pathos and urgency and pleading in his voice. Destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. Here's our flashlight. I mentioned a flashlight. We're going down into the subterranean depths of a very complicated passage. A passage that we are only going to be able to skim the, the surface of, and we're going to need a flashlight in our hand. And for our purposes today, our flashlight's going to be this really simple, bipartite structure. And it's simply this. When Messiah is rejected, the city and the temple will be destroyed. That's it. Keep that in your mind. A, B. When Messiah is rejected, the city and temple will be destroyed. A.B. Jesus has been saying this again and again and again in Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard. Hey, there was a, there was a landowner and he had a vineyard and he put a hedge around it and he put a wine press in it and then he sent servants to receive the vintage. They were rejected. He sent other servants. They were killed. And last of all, he sent his son saying they will reverence my son, but the son was beaten, killed, and rejected. In Matthew chapter 22, he says there was a king, he had a son, and he held a feast for the son, 
And so he invited those that were invited to the feast, but they made fun of it. They made light of it. And so he went out to others and invited them to come. The son's wedding invitation was rejected. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus goes in and formally uh, denounces and also, as I mentioned in our our sermon, invites. Fools and blind is not only a denunciatory term. Fools and blind is an invitation because God is in the business of forgiving folly and healing blindness. Can the church say amen? So, So here again, but Jesus is rejected. And then in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus' final departure from the temple. This is the story he's been telling in parables. This is the story that the Old Testament's been telling in prophecy. And now it's happening in flesh and blood. It's actually happening. And Jesus understands the full portent, the full gravitas of the situation. And so he winds his way up to Jerusalem Mountain, up to the uh, Mount of Olives, not merrily, not cheerily, not positively, not happily. There was a somberness, a sobriety, a gravitas in his affect. The disciples, they just saw Jesus and they're like, man, he is down. He is discouraged. He is, something's, he's wrecked. Something is wrong with Jesus. They've not seen Jesus with this demeanor because he knows. We are off of plan A. We are on plan B now. And plan B is going to wind up terribly. And here's the beauty of it all. Jesus is not primarily concerned for his own terrible, torturous death that is yet just just in front of him on the horizon. Jesus is chiefly concerned for the city. And so as he winds his way up the mountain and takes his seat, the disciples come to try and cheer him from his forlorn condition. Oh, Jesus, don't despair. We'll get him next time. You know, that's a tough crowd. Look at the buildings of the temple, Jesus. Look at how it glistens in the sunlight. Look at those grand edifices and structures. Some of the stones in the Jerusalem temple weighed as much as four tons. Look, Jesus, at the temple, how beautiful it is. And with absolutely no change, no positivity, no optimism creeps in to Jesus' demeanor. He looks at the disciples absolutely deadpan. And he says in verse 2, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that will not be thrown down. You try to encourage me with the temple. You try to encourage me with its beauty. You try to encourage me with its stones. Do you see it? It will be absolutely decimated. It will be so raised that not two stones will be wobbly, uh, wobblingly resting upon another. The disciples are like, what? What? There is nothing in a first century Jewish mindset that can prepare a Jew who've already had their temple destroyed some six centuries earlier by Nebuchadnezzar for the destruction of the temple again. There's just nothing. There is no, it's, it's, it's 9-11 with the fall, the, the, the fall of the Twin Towers and what that did to capitalism and to Americanism and to democracy and all of that. It's that on another level emotionally, psychologically, socially. To see those towers came down, that was something that I suppose will always be etched in every American's heart, and I suppose to some degree in every person's heart that aligns themselves with America. But, but that can't even begin to capture the pain and the poignancy and the depth of what it would mean and what it would sound like to a Jew to talk about the destruction of the temple again. Well, we've already been down that story, Jesus. We've already been down that road, Jesus. We've already seen that movie, Jesus. We've already heard that story, Jesus. Look at the temple. Look at how beautiful it is. But friends, even the most beautiful edifice constructed to God's glory, when God has abandoned it and left it behind, is under judgment. So Jesus finds himself at the top of the Mount of Olives, preparing to give. Now, right at the center of this sermon here, this closing sermon, is this verse that has been historically an embarrassment for Christians. And the reason it's been an embarrassment is that many regard it as either totally unclear or an unfulfilled prophecy. And I want to sort of navigate our way through Matthew chapter 24 with this verse in mind. Right in the heart here of Matthew chapter 24 is this verse, a verse that's been used by Jews, a verse that's been used by Muslims, a verse that's been used by atheists, a verse that's been used by critics of the Christian faith to say, unfulfilled prophecy didn't happen, can't take scripture seriously, can't take Jesus seriously. And here's the verse. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. 
this generation. There are various interpretive hurdles and gymnastic maneuvers that theologians have used to try to get around this, but it says just what it sounds like it says. All of this stuff is going to happen in this generation. Of course, one of the things that Jesus talks about, one of the central things that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24 is his return in glory, what we in Seventh-day Adventist nomenclature call the second coming. And of course, the second coming did not happen within 40 years of Jesus' uh, incarnation. So it looks suspiciously like an unfulfilled prophecy. It looks like Jesus laid an egg. He got that wrong. And again, this is a verse that has been used by various critics of the Christian faith to say that is an unfulfilled prophecy. And I want to use this verse today to try and help you to understand the basic architecture of Matthew chapter 24 and the depth and the beauty and the complexity of what's going on in that subterranean labyrinth that lies beneath. The disciples ask a question in verse 3. And verse 3 is the Rosetta Stone for all of the rest of Matthew chapter 24. If you get verse 3 right, you stand a pretty good chance of getting the rest of the nearly 50 verses right. If you get verse 3 wrong, you have almost no hope. You've dropped your flashlight and you're 20 kilometers into a cave. Good luck wiggling and finding and navigating your way out. You likely will not be able to. Let's look at the question when the disciples try to cheer Jesus and he is uncheered, he is unmoved. And when he says to them, all of this will be thrown down. There will not be two wobbly stones resting against one another. Now as Jesus came to the Mount of Olives, the disciples said to him privately, of course you had to talk about these things privately. You couldn't dare talk about these things publicly. The destruction of a temple? The end of Judaism as we know it? You couldn't talk about that publicly. Those, that was the most profoundly emotional uh, revolutionary language. It's just, it, there's nothing, there's no Australian equivalent to a, how a Jew would have felt about that. There's no American equivalent either, I don't think. They came to Jesus privately. He couldn't talk about these things. And they said, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. The disciples probably think they're asking one question. In a Jewish mindset, a world without a temple is at this point an inconceivable concept. Yes, the temple had been built and destroyed before, but to imagine the destruction of the temple again, no. When Jesus talks about the end, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, in the minds of the disciples, these are synonymous events. These are the same situations, right? The, there's going to be the end, and there's going to be the return, uh, uh, the destruction of the temple. All of this, they think they're asking a single question, but in fact, they're asking two, and Jesus knows they're asking two, and he answers in the most profoundly sophisticated, poetic, brilliant way. And I want to I show you the structure of Jesus' answer, because it is phenomenal. Several things before we get into the structure. The disciples' specific question is, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? The word coming here is the Greek word parousia. Parousia. Parousia was a word that was reserved, not reserved, but it was a quasi-technical term that was used when a head of state or a very important governmental figure would come to a locale, to a village, to a hamlet, and they would have a parousia, an appearing, literally. The Caesar is coming, the governor is coming, the mayor is coming. This word, whenever this word is used, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, it means the return of Jesus in glory, not as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. And there's another little word here. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The word end here is centelia. This is the word that is consistently used in the Gospel of Matthew for the end. Not the end of the movie, not the end of the school year, not the end of the sermon, but the end end, the end of all things. That will become important for us, and you'll see why in just a second. They think they're asking a single question. The destruction of Jerusalem, the end, the centalia, that's got to be the same event. But what Jesus does is he answers their two questions in poetic fashion. It's absolutely fascinating. I want to introduce it to you. 
the Rosetta Stone, the, the, the Rosetta Stone there in verse 3, the, the, the thing that we're going to extract from verse 3 that will give you an insight into what's happening in Matthew chapter 24, it works really well in the English as well as in the Greek. You're not a Greek scholar, I'm not a Greek scholar, but fortunately for us in this case, the Greek and the English are very similar in the way that these words are used. And it kind of boils down to these words that you have appear on the screen. This and these versus that and those. So if, if you are speaking about this, you always mean something close. This table. These microphones. Something that is proximate to you. Something that is close to you. Okay? That is also sort of a general term, but it's, it's signifying not something that's close to you, but something that's away from you. Those speakers. That wheelchair. That door. There's this curtain here, or if I'm over here, there's this curtain and there's that curtain. Right? There's, there's this uh, stage and there's that doors. This and these, that's the plural, something that's close and proximate. That and those, something that's further away. Hold on to that because this, again, works really well in the English as well as in the Greek. Now, I want to walk you through this and I think you're going to love this because it's going to be a great insight. Here's the short version. I put it up on the screen for you here. Here's the map of the crystal caves of Matthew chapter 24. This is the map. This is what this... When I talk about this complexity underneath, and we're only going to just be able to scratch the surface of it, this is what I'm discussing. Matthew chapter 24 is, is, is di divided up into a classic Hebrew poetic structure. Not a chiasm, A, B, C, B, A, but a simple parallelism, A, B, A, B. Okay? Now, the A is the destruction of Jerusalem, and that takes place in verses 4 to 20. Jesus, in those verses, is going to describe the events in and around the destruction of Jerusalem. In verses 21 to 31, Jesus is going to be describing the events in and around the second coming. Jesus will then revert back to the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 32 to 35, and then he will conclude with the events in and around the second coming in verses 36 to 44. Now, let me show you that from the text so you don't just have to take my word for it. Let's go to verse 4. Well, actually, before we go to verse 4, verse 3 again. The disciples have specifically asked the question, these things. When will these things take place? And Jesus is going to take that phrase, these things, he's going to use it again and again and again in verses 4 to 20. Let's look at it. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. As I've already mentioned, Messiah figures were quite common in first century Judaism. This is not, Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be other Messiahs that will come. They will try to deceive. Don't buy into it. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. This was fulfilled in the first century. See that you are not troubled for all these things. These things. Close. Proximate. Right here. These things must come to pass. But the end, telos, is not yet. Just very briefly here, bear with me. The word for end back in, in, verse, in verse 3 was centelia, the end, the end, the end, the end, the end, the consummation. But the word that Jesus uses here for end, the end is not yet, is the word telos, and it never means the end end. It means the end of a thing, the end of the sermon, the end of the book, the end of the dinner. So Jesus, when he uses this word end, and it's a little complicated in our uh, Greek and in the English because the word end is translated two very different words are translated as the same word end but Jesus says here all of this it's not the end these things these close things verse 7 nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom there will be famines pestilences and earthquakes in various places all these these right here these close things these proximate things it's the very same word in the Greek by the way all these these things are the beginning of birth pangs they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. All of that was fulfilled in the first century, in the years immediately after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Then many will be offended and will betray one another, and they will hate one another. False prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the telos, 
to the end. Not the centalia, the end end, but the end. He will be saved. And this gospel, same Greek word, this, this gospel right here, the one that I've been teaching you day in and day out of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Tell us. Not Centalia. Now let me just pause right here and say something. If some of you are slightly confused, that's because you have heard preachers like myself go through all of those signs of the times in verses 1 to 14 and say, these are all signs that Jesus is coming soon. These are all end time signs. How many of you have heard that by a raising of hands? You've heard preachers preach these verses say these are end time signs. Of course you have. And they are end time signs because of something called typology. This is a type. The destruction of Jerusalem is a type of the end of the age. Yes, that is true. But the primary thing that Jesus is describing in these opening verses, verses 4 to 20, is not the perusia, the end. It's the telos. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. Now let's continue to watch this. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's local. That's local. That's right there. Judea. Hey, when, when the Gentile armies are around this city, then you need to get out of this city into these mountains. It's proximate. It's local. It's right then and there. Let him who is on the housetop don't go down to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and nursing and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Ah, now things are changing. There's, there's these things and this gospel and this. And now Jesus has made this fascinating little transition to those days. Jesus knows that the destruction of Jerusalem is not coming immediately. In fact, the destruction of Jerusalem will come in approximately 40 years. Here's a little heads up on where we're going. A generation. A biblical generation's 40 years. It will come. And Jesus knows this. So he knows that the destruction of Jerusalem and the fleeing and the difficulty of traveling with an infant, he knows that, that that's not right now, but it's not way off at the centalia, the end, end, end. So these are transitional verses. Verse 20, and pray that your flight may, may be not in the winter nor on the Sabbath. Okay, all of that takes place. Jesus is describing the destruction of Jerusalem, and we know historically that all of the things that are described there took place. Now somebody says, wait, the gospel didn't go to the world in verse 14. Well, it's true. The gospel did not go to the world in terms of the total global enveloping of the world by the gospel, but it did go to the, the, the world by representation. Paul says as much when he says the gospel has been preached to every nation, right? Representatives of every nation have heard the gospel. In other words, Jesus is saying here, you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and to all the earth. By representation, the gospel was no longer just a Jewish phenomenon. It was going to the Gentiles. It was going to the world. But in verse 21, Jesus transitions, and he stops talking about the telos, the destruction of Jerusalem, and he starts talking about the centalia, the perusia, the return of Jesus. Let's take a look at this. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, transition, a great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor will ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's, the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Not these days, not these things, those days. This and that, these and those. For those of you that are students of Bible prophecy, what Jesus is referring to here is the 1,260 years of papal supremacy. Those days. This is a period, in fact, we're going to get back into Matthew chapter 24 when we go through Daniel and Revelation. But when he says those days here in verse 19, or excuse me, verse 22, he's talking about the 1,260 days, or prophetic days or literal years. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So there are, there are significant similarities between the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the centalia, the end end, the perusia. Similarities, but they're not identical. Watch this. See, I have told you before. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, he's in the wilderness, like John the Baptist was. Many thought he was the Messiah. Do not go. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Well, why not? 
For as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so also will the perusia of the Son of Man be. For where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. See, the disciples asked two questions. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your perusia? They think it's one thing. It's two. There's this and that, and there's these and those. And Jesus spoke about these, and now he's talking about those. And we know he's talking about those because he says the perusia. And the perusia is not the destruction of Jerusalem. It is the return of Jesus to the earth. Let's continue on here, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, not these days, those days, the 1,260 prophetic days are literal years of papal persecution described in Daniel, described in Revelation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will perusia in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds to one, from one end of the earth to the other. Okay, there's A, B. Do you understand the basic distinction between this and that and these and those? Do you see that? These is the destruction of Jerusalem. Those is the end of time, the centelia, the perusia. Now here's where the study pays off. The study pays off in verse 32. All of that little hard work that we did there, by the way, again, we're just skimming the surface here. But that work that we put in there is now going to pay off in verse 32. And if I've done my work right here, it should basically jump off of the page. Now we're back at A. If you see there on the screen, you see your roadmap. Now we're back at A, the destruction of Jerusalem. How do you know that, David? What gives you the right to say that? Verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Pause. Remember that just back in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus came and he found a fig tree that had no fruit. And he cursed it. We had a whole sermon on this titled, That Fruity Difference. And we talked about their, the, the, the center piece of Matthew chapter 21 was there was no fruit where there should have been fruit. The Jewish nation should have had fruit. The trees should have had fruit. There should have been fruit, but there wasn't fruit. Jesus now transitions back to that analogy of the fig tree, which, by the way, only happened maybe the day before, not more than two days before. The disciples are still wondering about the cursing of that fig tree. They're still wondering how it withered so quickly. And so when Jesus transitions and says, let me tell you about a fig tree, they're like, oh, the fig tree. Oh, the fig tree. When you see it, when its branches become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. The leaves, the bloom, the blossom, the fruit. Verse 33. This is going to jump out at you. So, you also, when you see all these things, these things, Jesus has transitioned back from those to these when you see these things, these close things, these proximate things, you know that it is near even at the doors. What? The destruction of the temple. The very thing you ask about. When will all of these things happen, Jesus, and what will be the sign of the perusia and of the centelia? How will we know? Jesus transitions back. When you see all of these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation. Bam. The reason that this is not a failed prophecy, the reason that our friends the Muslims and our friends the Jews and our friends the atheists have misunderstood this is they have understood Matthew chapter 24 to just be a general announcement about all the stuff that's going to be happening before Jesus returns. And look, none of that stuff happened in the days of Jesus. None of that stuff happened in the immediate 40 years. But Jesus has switched back to the destruction of Jerusalem and he says, I got news for you. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. And friends, it is a tragic fulfillment and yet somehow profoundly a beautiful fulfillment of prophecy that within about 40 years of when Jesus is speaking, Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. This is such a profound fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And I remind you that even secular scholars, even secular historians say, yeah, this stuff here, Jesus said that stuff. This generation, 
which raises a really fascinating question. How did Jesus know that? I mean, really, how did Jesus know? How did Jesus know when he told the parable of the vine dressers in Matthew 21, when he told the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22? How did Jesus know at the end of Matthew chapter 23 that your house would be desolate? How did Jesus know that there wouldn't be two stones left upon it? How does he know this stuff? Is it because he's God? And don't say it's because he's God, because that's not how he knows. If Jesus gets to play the God game while he's walking around down here on earth as a man, then he's not a man. He's just God dressed up like a man. He didn't know because he was God. He knew because Scripture had been saying it for centuries. Scripture had been saying it for centuries. Now, this is a part of this subterranean. We're not going to go into these depths, but you can come with me. Come here. Look. Look inside of this cave. I'm going to shine my flashlight into this giant amphitheater inside of these caves, and you're going to see something beyond which there are mysteries within mysteries within mysteries. But here's just a little glimpse. In Matthew chapter 9... In Matthew chapter 9, and by the way, we should just quickly show you this slide. Matthew chapter 24 is wrapped in the envelope of the book of Daniel. You cannot make any sense of Matthew chapter 24 without the book of Daniel. Let me just give you a few instances here. Number one, Jesus uses the Son of Man and he comes with clouds. That's straight out of Daniel chapter 7. The abomination of desolation, we just saw in verse 15. That's straight out of Daniel chapters 8 and 9. The destruction of the city and the temple. That's going to come straight out of Matthew chapter 9. I'll show you that in a second. Rumors of war. That's straight out of Daniel chapter 11. The great tribulation is out of Daniel chapter 12. Jesus is speaking the language of Daniel and every first century Jew would have known it. They would have known it. Oh, Jesus is talking the language of Daniel. So check this out. At the very center of of Daniel's prophecies, uh, to me the most profoundly beautiful prophecy in all of Daniel's prophecies. We're going to get into this and I cannot wait. Sometime next year, God willing. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. You have... Again, we're just peering in just briefly to this beautiful subterranean chamber. We'll talk about this later, but I want you to see the complexity here. Daniel prophesies some almost 600 years before the time of Jesus. Guess what? The Messiah will come and the temple will be rebuilt. That's Daniel chapter 9, verses 25a and b. First part of the verse, second part of the verse. Then verse 26, the Messiah will be killed and then the temple will be destroyed. Take a look at that. Messiah will be killed. Temple will be destroyed. Messiah will end the temple sacrifices, 27a, and the temple will remain desolate forever. Friends, let this settle into your minds right now. Let this settle into your complacent, perhaps complacent, I don't want to be judgmental. My own, I I have complacency myself. I freely admit that. But let's let this settle into our complacent 2016 first world, sunny Australian coast plenty of clothes to wear, nice cars to drive, buying new chairs world. The Bible is right. The Bible is real. The Bible is profound, and it's telling you something prophetically that is absolutely impossible to have manufactured. The reason that Jesus could tell the story of the vine dressers, the reason that Jesus could tell the story of the feast, the reason that Jesus could go into Jerusalem and say, your house is left to you desolate, and the reason that Jesus could say there's not going to be two stones left upon one another, is not because he was God and he was guessing, it's because he was going off of a prophecy that came before him 600 years before. Now, here we are 2,600 years later, And with all due respect, all of us, myself included, we read these things at times with such a casual ambivalence. We cannot wait to get onto the sports page. We cannot wait to get on to the political stuff. We cannot wait to turn on the television. We cannot wait for the Sabbath to end. We cannot wait. I'm telling you, friends, it's just right there in the middle of your life is this glowing, unignorable, beautiful reality that God's word is real and it's true and it demands your attention and we throw blankets over it we throw blankets over it we throw blankets over it so that it just occupies just the right amount of our lives we bring it to church we sort of coddle it and we put it back but friends i want to tell you something there is a depth there is a profundity and there is a beauty and a truth to what's going on in the text of scripture that demands our attention demands so, let's just wrap this up out of Matthew chapter 24. Verse 35 is the last part of A. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no, by no means pass away. He then transitions back to the end of the world. Verse 36, but of that day, do you see it? Not this, that. That day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. For as the days of Noah were, so also will the perusia of the Son of Man be. The language is now switched back to the language of be. We're not describing the destruction of Jerusalem now. Now we're describing the return of Jesus in glory. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the perusia of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. Two will be grinding at the mill. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Watch, therefore. Incidentally, for all of this theological beauty, for all of this theological urgency, the message that Jesus is telling is watch, therefore. That's the two words. That's, 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 that's what he's saying. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over all, all of his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of. Verse 51, this should jump off of the page at you. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. The hypocrites, the professedly, apparently, supposedly religious people that Jesus is speaking to at that very moment in Matthew chapter 23, then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, let's wrap this up. I want to give you two statements here from Ellen White, two statements from Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and I want to drive a stake, right in here, and then I want to go over here, and I want to drive a stake in right here, and the truth about what it means to live as a Seventh-day Adventist in 2016 is between these two stakes. Some people go on this side. They, 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 they go too far, and some of you go too far this way, but I want to give you two stakes, and I want to urge you to live your life between that one and that one, and here they are. Number one, the shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive for us, for it savors of selfishness. Can you say amen? Some people, they, oh, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Look what's happening with the World Trade Center. Look what's happening with Donald Trump. Look what's happening with the Russians. Look what's happening. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus, Jesus is coming really soon. He's coming so soon. Je Jesus is coming really soon. He's coming so soon. You need to be ready because he's coming soon. And a lot of people, they orbit around the idea that Jesus' coming is so soon. By the way, there are millions of people in their graves right now that were just sure Jesus was coming in their life. You might be one of them, right? Okay, so this is one place. And Ellen White says, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't say to people, hey, get your act together because Jesus is coming soon. She says, that looks like selfishness. Then watch what she says. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us to compel us through fear to right action? This ought not to be. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love and mercy and compassion. Can the church say amen? So the urgency is not his coming. The urgency is Jesus. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is forgiving. The urgency is not the coming. The urgency is the man. So there's one stake I want to drive in. But here's another stake I want to drive in because there's some people that say, oh, Daniel and Revelation, oh, end time events, oh, we've been, they've been saying that for years. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, check this out. Here's another stake I want to drive in over on this side. Let no one feel that he is secure from the danger of being surprised. I guess that would be the pastor as well who just spent hours studying this this week. I should not feel secure. Just because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, just because you know Daniel, you know a little bit about Revelation, and you've read the great controversy, don't be, don't think. Let no one feel that he is secure from the danger of being surprised. Let no one's interpretation of prophecy rob you of the conviction of the knowledge of the events which show that this great event is near at hand. So it's urgent, and it's near, 
But the nearness and the urgency should not override the basic attractiveness of Jesus. I want to drive those two stakes in. The lesson here is watch, therefore. That's the takeaway. With all of that subterranean beauty, all of that subterranean complexity and profundity, the point that Jesus is driving at is pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. But here's something I want to sort of bring to your attention. I've said this. Jesus himself is urgent, and therefore his coming is urgent. I tweeted two things just this week. The principal urgency in Jesus' second coming is Jesus himself because Jesus has always been urgent. Can somebody say amen? You don't have to manufacture some Donald Trump, Illuminati, conspiracy theory. You don't have to manufacture anything for Jesus to be hugely urgent. Jesus is urgent because he invites you, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's where the urgency resides. Not in some artificially concocted and, you know, passionate conspiracy that you might be interested in. That's not where the urgency lies. Second tweet this week. Too often, Jesus' second coming is preached as an urgent event quite apart from the principle and inherent urgency of Jesus himself. Let me tell you something. There is no way to be ready then and not be ready today. The best way to be ready then is to be ready today. And the way to be ready today is not by stockpiling, dry, stockpiling dried food and having your own plot of land, though that might be helpful to you. But the way to be ready is to come to Jesus and to put your faith in Him. So last night when I was watching that lightning storm, I had no idea that at that very moment one of my dearest friends was not only sleeping, but was sleeping in Jesus, or very near it. The message is not, Jesus is coming at the end of time, therefore be sure that you know Daniel and Revelation inside and out. That is great. It's wonderful. We're going to study it in this church. The message is, these things and those things. Because readiness then is about readiness today. There's this and there's that. That is the second coming. But this day is the day that you have today, a day that a lot of people didn't get. And this is the day to be honest. This is the day to be a servant. This is the day to spend your money in a way that brings honor to God. This is the day to decide who you're living your life for, whether yourself or some larger purpose. This is the day that you have. This, as the psalmist said, is the day that the Lord has made. That day is coming, but this day is a day that you have. It's a gift, and someone has said that's why they call it the present. Yes, those things matter, and that is important. But all that you can be certain of is this day and these things. And I want to invite you to be certain of the things that are near. Of your today. Of your now. Because even 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 20-year-olds die. And they die tragically and they die terribly, and they die in the very same way that 70 and 80 and 90-year-olds do. And I hope that you will be that generation that sees the return of Jesus. I want to be that generation. I think I will be. But I cannot live my religious experience savoring of selfishness, anticipating that when what I have is this. I leave you with the words of N.T. Wright. Our calling then is to hold onto Jesus himself. To continue to trust him. To believe that the one who was vindicated by God in the first century by the resurrection will one day be vindicated before the world in his return. That day will sort itself out if this day Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And those things will be all right if these things are in order. Father in heaven, these and those, 
Forgive us where we have oriented ourselves to those and we have forgotten these. And forgive us, Father, where we have oriented to that and have forgotten this. Today, Father, we have just begun to barely plumb the depths of this grand and beautiful passage that is Matthew chapter 24. But in all of its complexity and beauty and profundity, these two words come bubbling to the surface. Watch, therefore. Be awake. Be alert. Know your own heart. Know its conditions. Know its weaknesses. Know its temptations. Watch, therefore. Cling to Jesus today. Believe in Jesus today. Trust in Jesus today. Father, teach us what it is to live this, that we may be gifted with that. And teach us, Father, what it is to use these and to know these, that we may be entrusted with those. We do believe that that day is coming in the not too distant future when the lightning will shine from the east even to the west. But Father, there is an extremely high probability, a certainty, that people in this room will not live to see that day. But we have lived to see today. And this is a day that you have made. May we rejoice and be glad in it. May you be our Savior, not only then, but now. Let everyone say, Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching, and take care.